You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Well, good morning, church. That's super good. Well done. Hey, uh, we're really glad you're visiting with us today. If you're visiting, maybe it's your first time, second time. I just met a couple last service. I just got married a few weeks ago, and they've been with us for a few weeks, and it's perfect timing to join a church, right? School's kicking back up. People are getting married. Life is happening. <laughs> it's a good time. We are in our second week of a series called Gotta Have Faith. Here's the short version of this. In case you're visiting with us, none of this may make sense if you're new to faith. That's fine. But in the very beginning of the Bible, we've got the book of Genesis. It literally means beginnings. That's where we're going to be. We're going to be studying the book of Genesis. Somewhere about three-fourths of the way or whatever through the Bible, we've got Jesus, and the New Testament begins, and then the whole thing ends with Revelation. Here towards the end of the Bible, not quite to Revelation, we've got a book called Hebrews, and the writer of Hebrews is looking back over this first whatever of the Bible, the first section we call the Old Testament, and he's looking at all these different stories and heroes of the faith and different men and women who made a major difference in the world. And he's talking about them and he's encouraging a group of people in the first century to hang on to their faith and not quit and not give up. And we're taking one chapter of that, Hebrews 11. We're looking at his outline of the book of Genesis and we're using that as our outline. So today we find ourselves in Genesis 4. Don't, you can open your Bible if you want to, but we'll get there in a minute. We're not going to go there yet. And, but if you notice, last week we only got to like Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And you're like, wait a minute, now we're in chapter 4. It's because we're following his outline of Genesis. So you're going to need to read this on your own. I would recommend at least a chapter or two a week just to kind of get yourself caught up on what's happening and why it's happening. I'll try to fill in gaps, but we're going to one, two, skip a few today. All right. With that in mind, let me start with this question. How bad can things really get? That's the question we're going to find ourselves answering throughout this morning. I remember when I was a young man, one day I came home from school and I had something in my backpack that I was super stoked to show my parents. My parents rarely ever asked to see my backpack because I wasn't a kid that they really needed to worry about. I mean, I'm amazing. So they knew that. I knew that. I'm glad you know that was a joke. But when I came home, I, my, we walked in kind of this little hallway. We had like a little living room off to the left. And there was this hallway. And to the right was a hall closet. And then there were stairs that went upstairs. And then the kitchen was straight ahead. So I walked in. My mom, what I remember of this day is my mom was in the kitchen. And I walked in and I put my backpack in the, the hall closet, which I didn't normally do. But in my mind, I didn't want my mom to go through my backpack and find the thing that I wanted to have like this great reveal moment, right? Like at the end of like an HGTV show, like, ah, you know, here it is. And I wanted to show her and my dad. And I don't remember what it was. I think it was like a report card that was really good. I was so, I don't remember. I just remember there was something in there I wanted to wait. And so I went in the kitchen. My mom's asking me other questions about my day. And I'm giving her the typical teenage answer. Fine, good. What'd you learn today? Nothing. You know, all the things. But there was something different she could pick up in the way that I was acting, right? Because women have this intuition mom thing going on. And so she said, well, where's your backpack? And I said, I don't remember exactly what I said, but it was something like, I don't know. She's like, what do you mean you don't know? You like just walked in the door. I was like, it's in the hall closet. But see, I didn't have the verbal skills to just say, mom, please don't go through it yet. I promise you'll get to look at it. I just really want to show you and dad at the same time. If I had just said that, end of issue. But that's not what I did. So when my mom got very concerned and she went over to the closet, finally found my backpack, pulled it out, and she bent over to grab my backpack, I smacked her on the back. And then she stood up with this look of, oh, no, you didn't. <laughs> and she didn't, like, she didn't, like, attack back. She didn't, like, 
put me in timeout or anything. Like she just looked at me, I guess this is timeout, and said, go to your room and wait until your dad gets home. And I went up there and made plans for all the ways my dad could kill me. And then tried to decide, like, I don't even have, like, a suitcase in my room. Like, could I pack everything and wrap it, like, back in the old school Bugs Bunny kind of way, like, wrap it in a blanket and tie it on a stick and throw it over my shoulder and jump out the window and, like, make a run for it. There was nowhere to go. I was stuck. And I spent the next two hours agonizing. How bad can things really get? And that's where we find ourselves in Genesis chapter 4. By the way, I'm not going to answer the question, how bad things can really get. (laughs) When we find ourselves in Genesis chapter 4 today, hang on, we'll get there in a second, We've missed Genesis 2 and 3, and here we go. From Genesis 1 all the way to Genesis 3, God made everything there is, and then he made the first two people, Adam and Eve, and he gave them one rule, don't eat of this tree, because the moment that you do, everything is going to change. And sure enough, this serpent comes along that we know is Satan, and he plays a significant role from beginning to end, and what Genesis 1, 2, and 3 show us is that we are all in the middle of a spiritual battle. And so Satan uh, injects himself into the story, He tempts Eve, and Eve eats the fruit and gives it to Adam. Now, the reason this is powerful is what happens next is Adam and Eve go and hide in the bushes. God comes down in the cool of the day to walk with them, as he often did, and he can't find them because they're hiding. And he's like, Adam, where are you? And Adam's like, I'm over here, God. And he's like, what are you doing in the bushes? He's like, I'm hiding. Why are you hiding? Because I'm naked. And God goes, Adam, who told you you were naked? And what's important is in those first stories, it says over and over and over again, Adam and Eve were naked and had no shame. This isn't about Adam and Eve, so I have to keep moving. There's so many things I could say. I've done it many times in the past, so we're going to keep moving because we're following Hebrews 11's outline of Genesis. So what happens, though, is God comes to Adam and Eve and the serpent and says, all right, there's now going to be disciplines for everybody because of what you've done. To Adam, he says, now the ground is going to work against you. It's going to have weeds, so it will be hard to do your work. But Eve, there's going to be pain in childbirth. Not only that, but you and your husband are going to fight because you're going to long for the authority that he has over you. Instead of you guys being on the same page, instead of you guys working together to solve the world's problems, you're going to find yourselves fighting. And he says to the serpent, this thing in Genesis 3.15, and I will put enmity, that's like division, I will put separation between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This is powerful because When you first read it, you think to yourself, what what is this idea? First of all, this is not the Bible's way of saying this is why women hate snakes. This is a spiritual text that has to do with the fact that we have a spiritual enemy. And now those who follow in his footsteps and those who follow in God's footsteps will find division between them. And the whole idea here is one day, this woman, Eve, she's going to give birth, and that offspring is going to crush you. Oh, you're going to strike his heel, but he's going to win the battle. Now, this is important, and we'll get to this by the end of the message, but let me just set it up right here, because this is exactly what happened when Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. This is the first prophecy in the scripture of Jesus. When Satan, the serpent, killed Jesus on a cross... And he went into the tomb. It looked like he'd won. It looked like he'd struck, injected with venom, and the story was over. But then when Jesus rose from the dead, he crushed the enemy and took the power of death out of the enemy's hands so that now anybody who comes to faith in Jesus doesn't have to be afraid of death because we know this is the beginning of an eternal thing called life. And that's great. Yeah, we can stop. That's great news. That is great news. But that introduces us to chapter four. 
Because when we get to chapter four, it starts out in this way. Adam made love to his wife, Eve. I didn't say this last service. It was one of those things where I thought, ah, I don't have time. I probably don't have time. But the word here in Hebrew is not made love. That's our English translation. The word here in Hebrew is no, K-N-O-W, not like N-O, K-N-O-W. And Adam knew his wife. That's because the idea here in this intimate moment is that these two people are coming to know each other on the most personal, deepest, most intimate level. There's something that happens in this moment that is supposed to create and foster connectivity and unity between these two people that it can't be separated. This is why the scriptures are clear. What God has joined together, let not man separate. And the two shall become one flesh. And so it's all wrapped up in this beautiful idea. And Adam made love, as we would say, to his wife, Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. What you can read into her statement is, maybe he's the one. Maybe this is the one to resolve the problem. Because what we see at the end of Genesis 3 is Adam and Eve are kicked out of this garden that God had made. Life was easy in the garden. It was beautiful in the garden. But now they're out of the garden and there's these angels guarding the way back of the garden. They can't get back in there. And there's this lingering question, how bad can things be? I mean, I know everything's broken. I know Adam and I just, we can't seem to get on the same page now. There's just bickering and fighting and division between us, but maybe it won't be that bad. And maybe my son will fix it. And later she gave birth to his brother, Abel. When you go into chapter five, I was going to put this up there. You just have to read it for yourself. But chapter five says, and Adam and Eve had many other sons and daughters. Some of their names we know, some of them we don't. But the whole idea here is we're launching a big family. Remember, God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. So chapter four is going to focus on these two and answer the question, how bad can it really get? In fact, the very next part of verse two starts the story. Now, Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. All you need to get here is Abel works with animals, Cain works with the crops. That's pretty much the bottom line there. In the course of time, Cain <clears throat> brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, and Abel also brought an offering. Fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. We'll deal with why in a moment. We'll come back to that as best as we can know. But what you're beginning to see is the beginning of sibling rivalry. Does anybody in here have a brother or sister? Does anybody in here have more than one child? Have you ever heard of children fighting with each other? Even though you have the same parents and they crazy loved or love both of them, isn't it amazing how much sibling, sibling rivalry plays a part? Cain is jealous of his little brother because everybody knows little brothers are the best. Everybody knows that, right? I'm a little brother. In case you weren't sure where I was going with that. No, but Cain is jealous of his little brother. And here in this story, we're about to see jealousy, envy, rage, anger. James, later on towards the end of the Bible, close to the end, at Revelation again, he writes about this idea. And he says, you know, sin starts with just an idea in your heart. And if that idea isn't taken care of, it starts to grow. And when it's full-blown, it leads to death. We see that, Genesis chapter 4, verse 5. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. The whole idea here is he's sullen. He's, he's walking around. He's, he's sulking, right? He's like, mm. And God sees this. And in verse 6, it says, Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? 
Why is your face downcast? I mean, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. See, this idea of sin, you may have heard the word many times. The the Greek word for sin, this is probably a Hebrew word, but the Greek word for sin is amartia. And it literally just means to miss the mark. And the idea literally is about somebody who's pulling back like a bow and they're taking aim at a target, but they don't hit the target. They hit somewhere on the outside or perhaps some other target altogether. And that's the word that's used often to describe sin because the whole idea is God had a right way for us to live and a wrong way for us to live. And what he's saying is, you, Cain, didn't aim at the right target. Your brother did. Why are you mad? Why are you mad at your brother? Your brother didn't do anything to you. He didn't rub your face in it. He didn't brag or boast. He simply did the right thing. And I honored that. You didn't do the right thing. But Cain, if you fix this problem, if you go do the right things, I will honor you. So we're starting to see a tree moment again. You're going to see this throughout the book of Genesis. In the very beginning, God made two trees, a tree of life, obedience and faithfulness to God, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil have nothing to do with this one. This is Cain's moment. He's already starting to head towards the wrong tree, but Cain keeps going. In fact, we get to verse eight. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. Some older translations, and they're in the minority, actually say that Cain said to his brother, let's go out to your field. We don't know. That's why you don't see it often in English translations. We don't know if that was original or not original. We try to acknowledge those things when we're unsure. When we have thousands and thousands of texts of an ancient document, and some have it and some don't, generally speaking, we tend to go with the best, most accurate translations or the ones that are in the majority. If not, majority doesn't always rule if they're more recent and we can't trust them as much. In this case, we don't know if that's the case. That would be an important little note. It's not relevant, but it would be super cool because what it would tell you is just how deceptive Cain is acting. I'm gonna go into your turf. But what we see is he already knows what he's going to do. Nobody up to this point has ever thought of doing what Cain is about to do. So Abel is oblivious to the idea. Let's go out into the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. I mean, how could Cain outmuscle Abel? And the simple version is Abel didn't see it coming. Perhaps he had his back turned, or perhaps Cain came with some sort of weapon. But what we know with certainty is this was a premeditated act by Cain. He had been stewing for days about his brother and how God enjoyed and favored his sacrifice, but not his. And instead of taking personal responsibility for his actions, he blamed Abel. And you may ask yourself the question like, man, how did we get here? How bad can it really get? I mean, we go from two people eating fruit from a tree to murder in one chapter. And the thing is, a lot of us think to ourselves that we can manage our own sin. I can handle it. I'm smart enough. I'm wise enough. But the scriptures never tell us to manage our sin. The scriptures tell us to kill our sin. To crucify it is the New Testament phrase to literally hang it on the cross with Jesus. 
Because here's the thing, whenever you try to manage your sin, it will eventually get you. My last pastor used to say it this way. Sometimes you get what you want, but then what you want gets you. It could start as an innocent desire. It could start as something good or something that looks pleasing to the eye, like a piece of fruit. But then when you eat it, all of a sudden, you're not ruling it. It is ruling you, and you maybe didn't see it coming. Rarely do we completely fall into sin. Almost always, it is a slow progression of really bad decisions over a period of time, and we find ourselves like sheep grazing away from the shepherd instead of just taking off running away from the shepherd. See, all of these things come to us as a warning to be careful that we're aligning our hearts and our lives to our Father's heart. In fact, a guy who wrote much of the New Testament, his name is John. He wrote the book of John. He wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and almost guaranteed he wrote the book of Revelation. He writes this in 1st John chapter 3. He says this, For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Wait, wait, what? He murdered his brother because his actions were evil and his brothers were righteous? That's not a reason to murder somebody. Well, that's easy for us to say because it's so easy to look at everybody else's problems and think, well, you can't figure it out, but me, I got it figured out. And that's exactly what's happening here. I've used this illustration before and I'm gonna be a little bit vague, but I have a friend of mine who um, his private sins and lusts got control of him, led him to an affair where he cheated on his bride, and he eventually, after it all came out, he ended up in a treatment facility. I believe he was in that facility for three months, it might have been four months. He, he lived there while he kind of put the pieces of his life back together and figured things out. And he and I were sitting down and talking one day, and he was sharing with me that while he was in that treatment facility, he met a lot of people who did a lot of things that were illegal and immoral. And as he told me some of their stories, <clears throat> I found myself sitting in judgment over them, kind of wagging a finger, right? Like, how dare they? I can't believe anybody would go there. And he said to me, in a very loving and compassionate tone, he said, you know, Matt, I think it would have been easy for me to like you stand in judgment over somebody else who's gone further than you or I have gone. It's like, but after being in there and really taking a look at my own heart, I realized if sin is not killed, all of us could end up somewhere we swore we'd never go. And I thought, wow, it is easy, isn't it, to stand in judgment over others and not realize just how easy it is for sin to take hold, which is why God gave him this call. And it's so easy, if you look at Cain, he's just envious, he's just jealous. But instead of repenting of his own actions, his own heart, his own motives, he took matters into his own hands. And what's really important here is he belonged to the evil one. Don't miss that. See, we were all in a spiritual battle and we have two trees that stand before us, the tree of obedience and the tree of disobedience. And we have a choice to align our hearts, to kill our sin, to say, God, I need you, help me. I wanna live for you even when my desires are opposed to yours. And God stands ready to help. And by the end of the message, I wanna tell you how he does that. But let's pause that path for a minute and just Stop and answer another question for a second. What is it about Cain's sacrifice that the Lord did not appreciate? I mean, why did God look at favor on Abel's and reject Cain's? 
Well, here's where we got to go to Hebrews 11, which is our outline for this whole thing through Genesis. Hebrews 11, 4 says this, by faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous. When God spoke well of his offerings, and by faith, Abel still speaks, even though he is dead. So the simple answer, though, let's unpack it a little bit. The simple answer is Abel offered a sacrifice by what? Faith. Good. You you all got that. Right. I could hear everybody say it with me all together now. But just just to be clear, it'll probably be the answer every single week in a series called Gotta Have Faith. Faith. All right. Now we're getting there. We're getting there. You're finally with me. All right. Audience participation is encouraged here. All right. The reason this is important is because the difference between Cain and Abel's sacrifice had to do with something you can't see. But it also had to do with something you could see. Let me unpack that for a minute. Throughout the Bible, from beginning to end, there's this pattern. Man looks at the outside and God looks at the heart. Now, we often do this in culture, right? We talk about the way you feel about somebody. We talk about loving them from your heart, right? When somebody stands up to speak and they don't have notes and they're talking, you're like, oh, I'm so powerful because they were speaking from their heart. Well, throughout the scriptures, that would be true, but they would also add in something our culture would separate. They would add not only the emotional, like speak from your heart, passion from your heart kind of concept, but they would also add in the idea of logic. And logic was thought to sit in the same place as the heart. Now, we think of the heart as this literal pumping thing in our body, but in the scriptures, it was something bigger than that. It was all of this, these concepts kind of put in a blender and wrapped up together, and that's what's inside your chest. This idea of my logic and my emotion, my passions and my actions and my will, it all comes from my heart. And that's how the scriptures would refer to it. And so there are many times throughout the scriptures where God's like, I'm not looking at the outside. Everybody's looking at the outside. They're looking for the biggest, the tallest, the strongest, the fastest, the smartest, the prettiest, the best looking. I'm looking for hearts. I'm looking for somebody whose actions are for me. Their mind is for me. Their strength is for me. Their will is for me. Their desires for me. And it's internal, but it comes out in the way they live their life. Even when God is choosing a king, In fact, when God is ready to remove Saul and replace him with David, God comes to a man named Samuel. He's a prophet. And he says, Samuel, I want you to go and choose the king I'm going to reveal to you. So he goes over to Jesse's house. And he's like, Jesse, God is going to choose a new king. It's one of your sons. Let me see your son. He brings out the oldest son. He's big. He's strong. He's smart. And Samuel thinks to himself, that's it. That's the dude. And God whispers to Samuel. However, he did that. He's like, nope, not him. So they bring out the next oldest, the next oldest, the next oldest. They keep going through all the sons. And and Samuel's going, it ain't any of these losers. He didn't really say that. He's like, and it's none of these dudes. I don't know, who, who is it? And Jesse goes, well, we got one more, but he's small and he's ruddy, which means probably something like reddish. It's David. I mean, he's, he's like a boy, probably between 12 and 15 years old. He's out in the field with the sheep. And Samuel's like, go get him. Everybody has to sit around. Could you imagine being the brothers that day? While everybody waited for the youngest. I keep telling you, there's this thing about the youngest Until Jesus comes and ruins the whole thing and it's about the oldest, whatever. (laughs) And David shows up in 1 Samuel 16, 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height. Thank you, God. (laughs) Some of you are tracking with me. All right. For I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The heart. The heart. David's heart is for me. 
That's important because later in David's story, he's made king. It's a long, someday I'd love to, we should do David's story as one of these. Nobody else, I'm the guy in charge. We should just do it. Anyway, and it's so fun to watch his progression of faith, to watch this man of faith who has a heart after God wrestle through life and try to figure out his passions and his desires and when they get in the way and how to redeem his sin and how to make things right with God and to go on this amazing, beautiful journey with God. And at one point, David fails terribly and all of Israel is suffering the consequences of David's choices. And now he's trying to make it right and he's trying to figure it out. And so he goes to a man named Aruna and he says, I'm gonna buy your field and I wanna make a sacrifice to the Lord our God so that everybody can be reconciled back to God. And this Aruna, he's like, no, 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 King David, King David, just take it, take it all, take it, just take it. And David's like, no, 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 no. In fact, 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 24 says this, but the king, that's David, replied to Aruna, no, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice anything. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So when Aruna's like, Look, I have the resources. This is for God. It's totally worth it. David, just take it. David goes, not a chance. Because this is my sacrifice to try to make things right with God. I can't. I can't. See, this is critical to understanding the Cain and Abel story. Because when a person after God's own heart decides they want to do things that honor God, they decide to give God sacrificially from their life. And it means many things, many things that I'm still working out and working through in my own life. Like, where do I draw these boundary lines? How do I make sure that I'm healthy while doing this? And I gotta be honest, sometimes I don't do it well. But the idea here is that God gets my first and my best. My first and my best. If you were to go back into that Genesis 4 account, and you remember, Abel brought a sacrifice and Cain brought a sacrifice. It says specifically that Abel brought the firstborn and he brought the fat portions. And those two words are critical. And this is where we could go really deep for like another hour and most of you would be bored and it wouldn't necessarily help us. So I'm gonna go really fast and hope I could connect a dot that is super important for the last few things I wanna say to you. If you were to track through your Bible, again, Genesis is the book we're in. The next book is Exodus, which we studied in February. So if you're visiting with us, you wanna know more about where the story ends, read Genesis, go back into February and listen to our service series. Then the very next book, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Leviticus is the priestly book. So after God leads Israelites out of captivity into the promised land, he gives them a system to deal with their sins. In Leviticus chapter seven, verses one through seven, he explains to them how to make these guilt offerings and these sin offerings. In other words, you've sinned, things are broken, and somebody has to fix it. Somebody has to make it right. And the two things that are clarified in Leviticus seven, verses one through seven, is you have to bring the firstborn unblemished, and you have to bring the fat portions. Now, today in our culture, Usually, we cut the fat portions off our meat because it gives us high cholesterol. But throughout the world, throughout time, the fat portions were the best portions. I don't know if you've ever heard of the group, the power team. 
They were these really big, big, strong guys. And they would go around and do like these shows. They'd go to churches and they came to my last church and they're like ripping massive phone books and they're blowing up water bottles until they pop. And they're like busting bricks and bending rods and doing all this stuff. And I got to be one of the guys that kind of helped take them around and set up a teardown and eat meals with them. And we'd be sitting at a meal and, you know, they'd be serving, they had to have certain foods in order for their bodies to stay massive or whatever. And so we'd be eating like prime rib and steaks and things like that. And I'd be cutting off all the fat portions and they'd be looking at me going, ooh, ooh, are you going to eat that? I'm like, yeah, no. And they're like, can I have it? And I'm like, what are you going to do with it? <laughs> and they're like, we're going to eat it. That's where all the good stuff is. And I was like, you, here, you, it's all, all you all day. And they're doing this with everybody at the table. So they are piling up fat portions. Is anybody hungry? And see, in Leviticus 7, the Israelites were told to bring in the first and to cut, and it goes into detail, cut the fat portions off the kidneys, cut the fat portion off this, cut the fat portion off that, and that's to be offered to the Lord. You're like, what is any of these fat portions? I mean, well, then the Levites and the priests are told, you can eat it. It was God's gift to provide for his people. God doesn't eat meat. God doesn't eat vegetables. God wasn't literally eating Abel's sacrifice or Cain's sacrifice. So what's really going on here? Well, this is before the law. Genesis is before Exodus. And somehow, maybe God told them, we don't know, somehow they just knew they had a sin problem and also they wanted to show honor and respect to God. And so Cain and Abel brought a sacrifice to the Lord because everything they had, they recognized is from him. So when an animal gave birth, they took the first perfect animal, sacrificed it, Abel did. And when the crops came up out of the ground, Cain gathered together his, his vegetables or whatever, and he brought it to the Lord. And the difference between the two, the reason why it says fat portions and firstborn is because they're letting you know Abel understands the sacrifice. He gets it. He's trying to bring to the Lord his first and his best. Cain is bringing his leftovers instead of his bestovers. I don't know that that's a word, but the idea here is that Abel is saying, I will give to God my best. Just like David, centuries later, says, I'm not gonna give God anything that doesn't cost me something. And see, what happens in all of us when we hear this is we go, what do I do with this today? And this is where we start to play mental games with ourselves, in my opinion. We start to say things like, well, that was all before the cross. Well, of course it was. All of it was before the cross. But the principle is the same. It's before the law too. The principle is when I understand that God is the one providing for me, all of a sudden I start to ask the question, God, how do I partner with you in bringing my best into this world? How do I partner with you in bringing you my first and my best? And what happens for a lot of us is we start to try to rationalize it logically as if you can figure out giving and generosity through your own mind. Like, okay, if I sit down with a spreadsheet and a budget, I'll make it make sense. Okay, so I gotta pay my house bill and I gotta pay my car bill and I gotta pay the electric bill and apparently people in my home wanna eat. So whatever's left over, God, I'm gonna give you a portion of that. But you know what happens? There's never any money left over. There isn't, I promise. You will always find more things to buy whether you do or don't need them. But if we put God first, you know what happens? All those bills get paid and somehow there's always enough. I can't explain it. It doesn't make sense to me. I just know that being a pastor now for 20-something odd years, my goodness, I'm getting younger. Uh, what happens is I get these emails from people who go, Pastor, when I finally took your word for it, it's amazing. And they tell me these crazy stories. 
about not having enough money and yet somehow it came through or getting a raise suddenly when they started giving generously to God. It's what happens. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians, so if you're looking at Genesis here and Revelation here, the beginning and the end of the Bible, this sits right around here, like on a timeline. Paul's traveling around to all these churches. He's planted a church in Corinth. And in 2 Corinthians 9, he says this, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And the idea here is Abel, he looked at what he had and went, you know what, everything I got is God's anyway. Even though my youngest, strongest, best animal, it would really benefit me as I'm trying to grow my business. You know what, it all came from God and God can replace this as much as anything else. So God, you can have the first and the best, here you go. And the whole idea here is when we connect that with our heart, man, it's a powerful thing. It's a powerful thing. It's not about how much you give. It's irrelevant. It's about the what we give and the way we give. In fact, there's a lady in the New Testament. She's a widow. That's about all we know about her. And everybody's coming to bring their offerings into the temple. Jesus positions himself with the disciples so they could directly see the little offering thing that would be in the middle of the, of the room. And so what would happen is these really wealthy, like Pharisees, they'd come in with their, their money bags jingling and they're walking and the chink, they sit in there, they perhaps dump it, it goes, you know, you can hear it kind of cha-chinging and blinging its way into there. And Jesus is sitting there just observing this. And this woman walks in and she's got two small, it says mites. A mite is a fraction of a penny in our culture. And she drops them in and she walks away and Jesus looks at her and he says, that woman gave more than everybody else. And the disciples are going, well, how's that possible? And Jesus goes, it's not about the number. You're hung up on the number. Those other guys walking in, they wanted everybody to know they wrote these massive, massive checks. But you know what God doesn't have in their situations? He doesn't have their heart. She walks in and she gave everything because she gave from her heart. Paul goes on in 2 Corinthians 9, he says, and God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good the idea here is when we generously give and connect that with God, crazy things happen. There's a work that God has for us and the work gets paid for when we generously connect with God and doing that work. So I mean, maybe just ask yourself this question, like is there any area in my life where I could be, need to be more generous and faithful to God? Is God calling me to give somewhere to partner with him in what he's doing in the world? Because if I'm afraid that I won't have enough, what Paul is trying to say is just trust the one who gave it in the first place. That if you give it back to him, he's gonna fill back in the gap somehow. In fact, I would say it this way. Real faith, real faith in our hearts will produce faith-filled sacrifice. When there's real faith in our hearts, it will produce faith-filled sacrifice. And God never wastes a sacrifice. In fact, yeah, you can stop clapping for God on that if you want. Every time you give sacrificially, what's happening is you're actually becoming more like God. In fact, look at John chapter 3, verse 16. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Remember in Genesis chapter 3, there was this First prophecy, the one day you'll strike his heel, he'll crush your head. Remember that? This is the fulfillment of that prophecy. God said, there's a sin problem and I'm gonna deal with it. And the way I'm gonna deal with this is by giving my one and only son. So every time we give, while we can never give to the level that God gives, we're always giving out of what he gave us first. 
Does that make sense? And we become like our heavenly father and joining him in what he's doing in the world by taking Jesus to the ends of the earth. Paul builds on this later in Ephesians chapter two, verse eight, he says this, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's a gift of God. So who gives the first gift? God, every good and perfect gift comes down from the father of heavenly lights, James says. But he says, not by works so that no one can boast. In other words, you could give all of your money away. You could sell your house, your car. You could do it all and still not have faith. Because the idea here is you can't earn your way to heaven. You can't do enough to get heaven. What you can do is receive grace by faith and then you can get to work so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created to Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And there's one key thing in here I think that brings it all together. This past week, I was at a pastor's retreat in Florida. I was leading three other guys, just kind of seeking the Lord, kind of restoring our hearts, sharing ministry burdens together. It was a really good time. Thank you, church, for allowing me to go and do that. I left Sunday afternoon. I got back Thursday night, and uh, it was so good for me. And one of the things I shared with the guys was out of Isaiah chapter 26. And there's this passage in there that says something to the effect of, grace is wasted on the unrighteous. And that is so powerful because the idea is when those who have an able heart and they want to honor God, grace means something because grace provides this path to walk with God. And if you've sinned in any way, you restore yourself to him. If you're off, you course correct and you get right with him and his grace is enough. But grace is wasted on the, on the canes of the world, the unrighteous of the world, because no matter how much grace God gives, it's never gonna move you toward him. And it stands as warning to all of us. If we have able type hearts. What we'll want to do is receive God's grace and say, God, what do I do to partner with you in what you're doing to continue to show that grace to the ends of the year? And the way that we do that is we surrender it all back to him. God, here's my heart. Here's my soul. Here's my mind. And here's my strength. So God, you could take it. You could take all of it because you're the only one worthy. So what I want to do right now is um, I just want us to sit in the moment with the Lord. Some of you are going to very much know the song we're about to sing. And if you want to sing, sing it. But otherwise, I just want to encourage you to sit for a moment and receive whatever the Lord has to say to you. There's a lot of things we covered in today's message. And the Spirit's going to connect different things to what you're going through. So let the Spirit speak and listen to Him. And I'll come back up in a minute and we'll take us right into communion, all right? So either sing or receive. Just be with the Lord right now.